This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. Welcome back to another episode of On The Margins Podcast. I'm your host, James E. Ford from Creed, the Center for Racial Equity in Education. Pleased to be joined by some outstanding individuals who I've been blessed to have the opportunity to work with for the better part of the year. These are our inaugural class of North Carolina Equity Fellows. So I'm joined by our uh, well, our initial fellows, the first of whom is our teacher fellow, Rodney Pierce, from uh, originally from Northampton, but now working in Nash Rocky Mount Schools. Dr. Janita Taylor, who is our principal fellow. She's from Eastern North Carolina originally as well, but she's working in Guilford County Schools. And then we have a Mene Wright, who is our journalism fellow, coming from my neck of the woods from Charlotte. We are, of course, missing the presence of our, our board fellow who uh, recently passed this year. That was Portia McMillan. Her memory remains strong with us. And so we honor her in this moment as well. We're going to give you all the opportunity to learn a little bit more about these individuals their own personal education stories. What inspired them to be a part of the inaugural class of Creed's North Carolina Equity Fellows and what they've learned and committed to doing to enact racial equity in North Carolina public schools. And so I want to, of course, honor the strong, amazing women that we have here. And so I'm going to begin uh, with ladies first. And I would like to ask Dr. Janita Taylor, if you could kind of give us a brief summary of your education story and what draws you to equity work. Yeah, sure, James. Thanks, first of all, for having us. Um, I am Jonita Taylor. I'm the principal this year at Murphy Traditional Academy, um, which is a public school in Guilford County Schools. We are a magnet school. Um, we I like to tout that we were the first magnet school in Guilford County Schools. And I will share that as a child, I was doubly identified, um, learning disabled in math, but academically gifted with the verbal areas. And my experience as a student, as a Black female who was doubly identified, um, really drove me to went to elementary school um, up to fourth grade in Wake County Public Schools and then um, moved to Hampton County Schools uh, beginning of my fifth grade year. And the stark difference that even as a child, I was able to describe and identify and I experienced in changing schools like that in the middle of my elementary career has always stuck with me. And so as an elementary school teacher, an elementary school um, instructional leader, and even as an elementary school principal, I want to make sure that I can create for my students and for students everywhere the opportunity to have access to all of the resources. Uh, resources and things that students in urban um, primaries have access to. That was the biggest difference for me. Um, and that's, that's kind of been my mission for the last 17 years at every level is to just advocate for students of color have access to everything that students who don't look like us have access to. So I take that with me everywhere that I go um, in all of my leadership. So a very unique and personal experience, right, with being doubly identified, right? And so on the one hand, being, um, you know, advanced, right? And on the other hand, sort of being identified as having exceptionalities and the weird sort of intersection that that places you at. 
And Absolutely. Stark differences from changing from one school environment to another and noticing um, that there's a, you know, there's a stark contrast right, in accessibility and resources and opportunity. And you carry that with you in this work now. What made you want to become an equity fellow? I think that, you know, as an adult, I really started to see and experience the systems that were in place for those uh, educational experiences that I had. As a child, the elementary experience that I had going from a, at that time, predominantly white school system to a predominantly black school system in North Carolina, I knew and, and could um, describe those experiences, but I wasn't exactly sure as to what those experiences and the differences in the educational experience exist. But as a as an adult, as I became a teacher and went through graduate programs and even became an administrator, I learned the the role that structures and systems play in creating um, the educational institution as we know it. And so I saw being able to participate in the Equity Fellowship as a grand opportunity to disrupt some of those systems, to question some of those systems in a way that I knew I would feel supported and I would feel um, encouraged and inspired by the believe in the same mission and want to disrupt. In order to, you know, create a better educational opportunity, educational institution for all students, but particularly African-American students. And so I saw Creed as the opportunity to be able to use my voice, um, to be able to learn some skills, to better in, in doing that with those who who feel the same way that I do. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And we love the word disruption, right? Um, there's such a thing as positive disruption. So don't be getting scared out there to the listeners, right? Uh, it's disruption with the purpose and with the mission. Um, and so I'm going to get past the mic to your colleague, uh, Miss Amine Wright, who, uh, you know, Amine's entrance and entree into the education space is a little bit different, right? And so I'm going to permit her to tell the story of her own educational experience that inspired this and then also why she decided to become uh, an equity fellow. So Amina, talk to us. All right. Well, thank you, James. Uh, yeah, so I am not a uh, teacher or someone coming from the educational space background, uh, but my experience as a journalist at um, several major daily newspapers uh, from the Detroit Free Press and Miami Herald, also at Charlotte Observer, my writings tend to always have an equity lens. And uh, one of the reasons why is because of my own educational experience. You know, um, I, uh, I started off at a private, almost all black uh, Catholic school in the South that my family had gone to for three generations. And while that was a very privileged space, I didn't realize exactly how privileged it was because what they did is that I was um, identified as gifted very early on and given a lot of the resources and support that I needed to support that. Um, so it continued all through high school, even when I was in high school and finally I was in a public school, but it was a very uh, white, um, very homogenous uh, public high school. And I was acknowledged as being one of the, if not the, most uh, gifted people in that high school. So what that did is that it gave me an unchallengeable reputation that I could then use um, for equity uh, for equity activities. You know, I started me and my sister started the Black Student Union at our high school. Uh, we were very vocal. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Rodney. We were very vocal um, in uh, in terms of what we saw as being injustice. We stood up for our black students. We did letter writing campaigns when we saw that something um, such as like a over suspension of black students was um, became a problem. 
And um, my mother was also a very strong advocate for me and for my, my sister. So, you know, my mom having been a principal at several large all-girls schools in Nigeria and in Ghana before we came to the States, and then after we came to the States, you know, uh, she often, you know, would teach at the schools I was at or she would substitute teach. So we had, I had protection on a lot of levels around me to see that I could progress the way I needed to. And I, um, as, as being a part of the Equity Fellows, I see just how rare that's been for most of us, for most black students, mm -hmm. whether they're you know academically gifted or not, how rare that support and how rare that protection has been. And um, it's just set me on fire um, to make sure that at the very least, people, the disparities are not due to any kind of, uh, not due to any kind of inadequacy in us. It's literally these systems. And yeah, Creed is really just opened my eyes to the actual data that proves these systems need to step up their equity their, their equity um, focus. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those, education is odd because even if you're not an educator, having gone to a school does afford you a level of knowledge, right? And so, you know, you have been given the capital, cultural capital of having gone to, you know, sort of an exclusive black experience, but also in a more integrated environment as well. And even as a young person, you demonstrated leadership, right? There was always, even if it wasn't necessarily labeled that, there was always a compulsion or a desire to speak up for issues of justice, of fairness. And, um, you know, I imagine that that translates into the way that you write as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, just basically um, the, 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 the basic thing about journalism is, um, you know, asking, speaking truth to power and knowing basically that we are what stands between, not to, not to elevate journalists, but I do truly believe that journalists stand between the people and power systems. And so it's our job to challenge those power systems to serve the people. Um, so yeah, I'm looking, uh, I've been very anxious and interested uh, as I've gone through this training to incorporate a lot of the things I'm learning in my writing. Excellent, excellent. And we're going to hear more about um, some of the things you plan on doing as well. Um, and we appreciate your perspective. Um, and it's been an honor and cool to get to know all y'all as well. Uh, last but certainly not least on the intro, we're going to bring in um, my man Rodney Pierce, who is our teacher fellow. And uh, Rodney, uh, talk to us uh, in the same fashion as Janita and me and they have just about, you know, your, your background, you know, what inspires you uh, to do this equity work and then why you chose to be uh, uh, an equity fellow. Okay, thank you, James. Um, I grew up in Halifax County, not Northampton, and <laughs> that was Janita. I grew up in oh, my Halifax bad, my County. Bad. <laughs> Attended Halifax County Schools, and um, I was a sophomore in high school when the Leandro lawsuit filed. Um, as a State Board of Education member, I know you're very familiar with that lawsuit. I came to education as a lateral entry teacher. I started out in a, at an HBCU um, with my undergraduate in North Carolina A&T, ended up finishing at a private Methodist college in Rocky Mount, North Carolina Wesleyan, and came into education coming out of municipality work, uh, working for towns and cities and stuff like that. I always have been a, a history lover, a history uh, aficionado, so to speak, someone who loved it, watched documentaries, so 
going into social studies was natural. When I got into the field as a lateral entry, you know, I just wanted to, you know, my wife was in education, our children were all in the same district. So I just wanted to, you know, work a few years, find something else to do, maybe, you know, just hold myself steady for a little while with a, with a state job. And um, my English teacher, who was my instructional coach at the time, encouraged me to apply for a fellowship at UNC Chapel Hill because of my history background and, you know, the little research I've done. I applied, I got it, and my life changed. They were so impressed with the lesson plan that I submitted that they invited me to present at the state level at the North Carolina Council for the Social Studies State Conference. That was in 2018. The following year, 2019, I was named the North Carolina Council for the Social Studies Teacher of the Year, and my career changed. And I started being encouraged more so to apply for other fellowships. So the next fellowship that I did was the Public School Forums uh, Education Policy Fellowship Program, which takes you behind the scenes or behind the veil of public education in North Carolina. And I noticed in my cohort that there weren't many people who looked like me. Specifically, there weren't many black male teachers. There were some black male admins, but not many black male teachers. When I did the research, I found out that only 4%, less than 4% of black, um, excuse me, of teachers in North Carolina were black men. Uh, less than 5% were uh, minority males. But when you look at prison statistics, almost 50% of the men in North Carolina state prisons are black males. The majority of those who are disciplined in school in terms of long-term suspension, short-term expulsions, that the more black men that we get into K through 12 education and in um, college education in terms of being professors and things of that nature, the more young black men uh, we can encourage to uh, embrace education, to use it as an empowerment tool to not only empower themselves, but their communities as well. So when the Creed Equity Fellowship presented itself, I thought this would be a great opportunity in public education in North Carolina, which is a lack of black male teachers or other male minority teachers in K through 12, and how that plays into so many disparities uh, when it comes to race in other areas of education. And, and I imagine that, you know, having been someone who started their career in a different field um, and, you know, transitioning into education. And then let's start with the fact that you're from, you know, from Halifax, and I appreciate you correcting me, right? There's a lot of history out in Halifax, particularly around education, right? So you got that as a background. Like you said, you're a Leandro kid. You, uh, you know, enter into education from another profession, and then you realize, whoa, there's not a lot of peers out here, right? Uh, yes, sir. And so that inspires you as part of other things to kind of focus on that that key lever and and just you know again just kind of t talk to us though why you think that that's so important you know what i mean like why for you is that like one of your key issues i just look at the data and the data as it pertains to black males in america in general is not good i mean we look at the time that we're living in we're in this overton window where i think it's imperative that we press for these policies that will address these racial inequities and you know, to know that a, a young black male, even if he's born to a wealthy family, 
still has a likelihood of being killed by police, still has a likelihood, a higher likelihood of not, you know, staying at that same wealth level or, you know, being a victim of all of these um, policies that, that, you know, let's, let's call them what they are, these racist policies that, that keep us from the opposite that we rightfully should have that we work for, you know, it's, it's, it's disappointing. And I think that given the opportunity that I have, given the platform that I have as a, as a teacher of the year, like yourself on a state level, I think that it's that we press and we advocate for those policies because if people in our position don't think it's important, then how can we expect people who may not have the lens or may not have the platform that we have, how do we, how can we expect them to, to not think, excuse me, to think that it's important and to press for it to be addressed. So I just think it's my responsibility as a, as a black man in America, knowing the history that I know, mm-hmm. as a black male educator in the state of North Carolina, as a Leandro kid, as a husband, as a father, to, to press for things in a system that really wasn't designed for us to begin with to change. Mm-hmm. And the data shows that as you have more black men in the classroom, black male students who are arguably your most vulnerable student demographic, do see improvements in a variety of areas. And uh, I just don't, I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want my son to be a statistic and I don't want my other sons, my students or daughters to, uh, to be statistics as well in terms of negative ones. Yeah. So I just think it's, it's a responsibility that I have to, to address this kind of stuff and to make it known. And, and, you know, and, you know, for the listeners out there, all of them kind of have, um, and it's obvious just from, you know, even that introduction that all of these are outstanding individuals and all of them have their areas of concentration, you know, passion projects, et cetera. Um, so this is kind of open to all of y'all. Um, you know, we're at the culmination of having spent an entire year together. Right. Um, and for those that don't know, you know, we had a rigorous selection process last year. Um, and, you know, there's the top class of folks that we selected. And we've gotten to know each other better. We've grown our understanding. We got a deeper and richer knowledge of, you know, of, of policy, uh, of problems, right? Of how we can approach those things. Um, of all the things that you've learned throughout the course of this year, and I kind of open it up to everybody. Um, I, this is maybe a two-part question. What has been sort of the most revealing um, area of inequity, right? That you're like, wow, that's really a problem. And what has been the key thing that you think you've learned throughout all of our time together? And I should pause here to shout out, like, this this fellowship is really facilitated, right, and led, uh, you know, by my partner Janine Bryant, who's not on uh, this show with us, but that's everybody knows, like, that's my ace. Um, and she keeps me and, and everybody else in line for the record. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so and y'all know I'm telling the truth. Uh, so anyhow, but talk to us about like the learnings from this year and the things that really stood out and, you know, just, you know, pop in wherever you feel feel necessary. So, James, I'll say something. Um, I think that the most revealing thing to me has been just the sheer um depth at which we've learned these systems and these inequities exist. Um, I'll take the opportunity to shout out um, the Creed uh, research piece, Erasing um, Inequities. And I think that, you know, the work that was done through that research, we all in experience 
we've all experienced as, as Black people, as Black folks in the United States, we've all experienced at one point in time or another um, a mishap or a, an, an inopportune moment or whatever you want to call it. And we have kind of been watered down and and thought of to accredit it to other things. Maybe we didn't work hard enough. Maybe we didn't, we weren't in the right place at the right time. We didn't have the right access. And, you know, with, through your research, one of the things that I have come to grips with is even when every other factor or variable was controlled, race still was the first factor at determining success in North Carolina public schools. And I think that's deep. I think to call it out and to say what it is, it doesn't matter what county, it doesn't matter what LEA, it doesn't matter, you know, what your disability is, or if you have one, if you don't have one, it doesn't matter the socioeconomic status. All of those things are variables that were controlled for. And so as we've gone around the state and just learned more about different communities, it has been utterly just just startling to recognize that race is the is a contributing factor and is a predictor of how you're going to perform in our state. I think that level of knowledge, even as a principal and even as an, a doctoral candidate, having all of that knowledge, I think calling it out, calling it what it is, and just knowing that that exists has been the biggest eye-opener for me. Um, I think you, you guys did a wonderful job with that research study and we've seen it manifest itself in all areas of our state over and over and over again. And so just the sheer existence of those structures has been very eye-opening for me. And I think my biggest piece of knowledge See, yeah, and, and you know, and I, I share that even with you, right? Having been someone who worked on that document, right? That we tend to think it's one issue, right? Like, oh, well, you know, it's it's just race with suspensions, or it's the color of the teachers, and you know, like you mentioned, just the sheer depth it shows how pervasive and how really deep the problems are. So I thank you uh, for sharing that. Amina or Rodney, y'all y'all um, got a response to that one? Uh, yeah, I'll say the biggest. Um key piece of knowledge that I came away from uh, was the way that that Creed was able to really break down actionable steps, how to build coalitions, how to go about attacking a systemic problem, how to sort of filter out the noise and get all of the stakeholders to buy in. That to me was the missing piece, you know, because as a writer, I can write about a problem, I can write about a solution all day long. What gets people to move though is something different, you know, a roadmap, a guideline. And you all did such a job of translating a lot of jargon isn't the word I would use, but a lot of um, you know, uh, words that, you know, mainly people in the educational professional sphere would know, but not a lot of concepts that, you know, concepts that lay people might recognize but we wouldn't necessarily understand the language that you're using to describe it. You all did such a job of making that possible for someone who's not in that sphere every day to understand and to know what to do. I, I applaud you because without actionable steps, all of the research in the world just kind of sits and collects dust, you know? That's right, that's right. So I, I, that was definitely my most uh, impactful takeaway. 
And and you often talked about, you know, um, the learning curve being steep for you, right? Uh, so, hey, you know, I'm, I'm coming in. I feel like I'm the odd person out, you know. Y'all, but... y'all use a lot of acronyms. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm sitting there like, I'm literally just like writing down alphabet soup. L-E-D. Yep. Okay. What are we talking about? You know, just I'm writing down all these things. But I don't want to break into the conversation necessarily because it's like, I also hear like, you know, really important things being said. And I'm like, you know, just everything was like asterisk. So I'll come back to that later. I'll look that up later. And I would, or y'all, or sometimes I'd break in and say, hey, you know, alien here, explain it to me. And I appreciated that too. Yeah, well, we, we appreciate you uh, slowing us down. I think educators, we, you know, in, in, in the spirit of coalition building, right, we tend to get lost in, you know, our own vocabulary, you know, and we assume that everybody comes from our world and our space and we start abbreviating things and, you know, breaking them out into acronyms. And it's like, oh, you got to slow down so that you can speak to the people. Right. And so, uh, you know, and that's essentially what your job is as a translator, as a communicator. Right. To make sure that the people have access to information. So we appreciate you for holding holding us uh, accountable for that. Um, Roddy, talk to us, man. Um, the most revealing process, a part of this process for you or, or information that you get garnered from. It. Yes, sir. I just want to say, can I answer the next question first? Because they kind of took what I wanted to say. Uh, you, you can do you can do whatever you want, man. You you riding, man. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they 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 nailed it in a nutshell. Um, when when Janita was talking, I was you know you can't see, but I was over here clapping um, because it it the the depth of information and the fact that race was a predictor for so for for in essence all the categories that we like to center on when we talk about education in our state. And I think what really struck me was how Creed is ahead of the curve. It's like, we have the data. Uh, we, you know, I'm a, I'm a historian, so when I read Deep Rooted, that, that really resonated with me. I was like, wow, I can use this in the classroom, you know, um, and, and teach my students. I teach, I'm going to teach eighth grade social studies this year, but I can use this to talk about the history of education in North Carolina. So. What has amazed me is that Creed has been ahead of the curve in compiling the data and having the Freedom Hill convenings and bringing in the stakeholders, building the coalitions and developing those action plans to address racial inequities in public education in North Carolina. And I think that you and Janine are, are uniquely suited, given your backgrounds and what you do now to, to tackle these. So I'm excited to, to, to be a part of family and just to see what's on the horizon because I know there's some more things that you guys have been working on that you've shared with us and that I've seen you know over the past few days just reading and researching and preparing for the podcast so I'm happy to be a part of a group that ahead of the curve that kind of saw what was already identified it got the data and the research to back it and has the plans and the tools to address it if other people who claim they're part of the coalition, who claim they're stakeholders in this same fight are willing to utilize those tools. And, you know, and I, I, I it, it does me well, I promise we didn't put them up to this, right? Like they, they, again, these, this is family at this point. We've all grown 
um, over the course of the year to just, you know, to love each other, spend time in each other's space to, to learn from one another, to be co-investigators and, and co-interrogators of all these equity issues. And to be clear, none of us has it all figured out, right? This is a leadership development, um, pr developmental process that we're all on. And, um, you know, to, you know, it just so happens that I think that our, I know that our orientation as creed is not to explore whether race uh, is a predicting factor. It, we, we operate on that assumption and we have the data to prove it. It then becomes a matter of figuring out how to disrupt, to use Janita's term, um, that, that, that system, right? And, you know, it should be stated that this is not just a, a learning journey, right? That this is a, a fellowship that is angled toward doing something. And so each of you all sort of has projects that you have been playing with and developing over the course of this year that you've committed to going back into your respective fields, going back into uh, being a teacher, going back into uh, being a principal in school leadership, going back into the journalism field with a project that's designed to enact change around racial equity. So, um, you know, I'm going to reverse the order here shuffle it up a little bit and say, uh, you know, um, Rodney, in about, you know, it's 90 seconds or so, um, and you know, we've, we've run this drill before. <laughs> Talk to the people about what it is that you are, uh, that you're working on, man. What is your project? Yes, sir. I'm working with uh, Representative Greg Meyer, who's a member of the North Carolina House, on developing a fellowship, teacher fellowship program specifically to recruit black male and other minority male teachers into K through 12 classrooms in the state of North Carolina to develop a, a model uh, that can be used, or excuse me, to bring in all the other groups, um, profound gentlemen based out of Charlotte, fellows program, mentoring organizations, just to, to develop support systems for these gentlemen once they enter the classroom, to develop specific professional development for them, to, uh, pair them with mentors and support groups, and just to increase the number of, of young, uh, excuse me, of uh, minority male educators in the classrooms throughout the state. Uh, you know, I, I really think that there is a strong correlation between the number of minority male teachers that we have in our K through 12 classrooms, as well as the young men who share those same demographics who become part of the school to prison pipeline. I think it's telling when less than 4% of your teachers in North Carolina are black men, but 50% of the prisoners in your prisons are black men. I just think that if we get more men in the class, more black men or more minority males in the classroom, we can do something about those other numbers that we don't like. And if the state is going to invest in the incarceration or the supervision of black men, in terms of the criminal justice system, then it should be willing to invest in their in their education in a more uh, resounding way. Very well stated. Very well stated. And um, you know, bias here, but we couldn't agree more. Um, and A, talk to us about what you're working on. What is your your project as a result of your fellowship? All right. So my project is kind of two uh, two pronged. I'm uh, collecting the stories actually of my fellows. So Rodney, I got to get you after this call, <laughs> but collecting the equity stories of my fellows and also um, doing a, a series of articles on uh, equity in the time of COVID. You know, that's been the big thing that's happened this year that sort of derailed everything before uh, civil uh, 
protest and uh, the push for push for you know police um, the end of police, police brutality has you know taken over. But how COVID has affected um, affected everything in education and how it's sort of revealed all of the inequities in education and how everybody has sort of uh, been forced to look through a lens uh, that completely takes into account access, completely takes into account ability, and also um, uh, reads at home. So yeah, so um, that's my, my focus right now is getting together those stories that looks at, you know, the um, effects of COVID and what can be done to raise equity through the eyes of students teachers and families at home and we should pause and say that that's particularly important for folks of color right when we have a conversation oh, about covid yeah. you know because it ain't it's not like just like you know a, a, a covid is a disease or ailment that impacts everybody equally right there's a particular concern for communities of color right mm-hmm most definitely because it not only affects us because of our underlying conditions but it affects us because of the overlying conditions of the society in which we live which forces us into these already inequitable situations you know um medical bias so we get sent home to die uh uh the fact that they're looking at underlying conditions to determine who gets a ventilator and who doesn't but of course who has the underlying conditions of hypertension diabetes and who has those conditions greatly exacerbated by living under a racist society that's black people so yeah yeah excellent black excellent. and indigenous people i should add for sure um, for sure deliberately multiracial right in the way that we mm -hmm. you know look at things and you know and we should state for the record that all of our fellows are black but the orientation we take and when we look at the data it's it's not just black folk you know um it's uh, in some cases latinx folk as you mentioned indigenous folk and North Carolina has, you know, all of those demographic groups represented. So I want to thank you for, for, for lifting and highlighting that. Dr. Taylor, uh, talk to us about uh, your project and, and what you're aiming to accomplish with that. Yes. So um, one of the things that I noticed when I became a principal was that there was not a lot of practical resources um, in terms of the narratives of principals who had equity uh, struggles and how they overcame those struggles. So for my project, I have been writing throughout this year as we, you know, learn together and experience things together. I've been writing what I've done at my school building, some of the bare Barriers that I faced as a school leader um, in my school building. And so um, one of the limitations that I've found is resources for administrators to actually use in their practice. So I'm working on um, creating a blog that is titled Equity Focused Leadership. And it has some of my writings um, as we've gone through this process together. But then additionally, I look to collaborate with other school leaders where they can share their ideas, share their struggles, share their weaknesses, and we can all kind of inspire each other to just do better. Um, and so that's all all coming together. I'm posting, I am soliciting feedback so that um, I get a variety of perspectives. But that's one of the things that I hope to, to kind of put out there, um, just as a space for all of us to be able to learn from each other and just understand that the struggles 
are not going to go away anytime soon, be a part of the solution, and that you're not alone. A lot of times the equity work at the school level, um, particularly administratively, the buck stops. And most schools that I know don't have two principals. And so I don't always have someone to run things by um, or to just kind of curse tell my ideas and so I focus leadership at the school level and at the district level can can share their opinions and share their writings and their experiences in a way that it informs all of us. So it, it really feels like a lot of this is centered on developing voice, right? Which is essentially I think what attracts all of us to any sort of leadership opportunity or platform is how do I find a voice in this atmosphere? How can I make sure that I speak uh, you know, um, in a way that, that carries, right, and that has influence and where people will listen and, and, and communicate. Um, you, know, you guys are, are primed to lead the state in so many different ways. Um, you're, you're, you're gifted. Uh, I feel like your, your, your tools and your analysis has been sharpened. You, um, to quote one of my uh, friends, uh, Sharif el Meki from uh, Philadelphia, from the um, uh, from the Center for uh, Black Education Development, he says, um, sometimes you have to raise your voice and sometimes you have to strengthen your arguments. And I feel like you all have been able to do both. You've raised your voice and strengthened your arguments. And so I, I guess what, as you embark upon this leadership journey from, from this point forward, um, what is it that you, you know, hope to accomplish, right? And this is you know, a question that I sort of ask, uh, I'm rephrasing it here, every guest on the show, which is like, what is your radical imagination, right? So we're not just trying to tear down something. We're trying to build something. And we should pause and say contextually, like for the listeners out there, like we're smack dab in the middle of what, the 11th day straight of uh, Black Lives Matter anti-racist protests in the United States of America, right? Uh, this is a monumental uh, moment and it, it's really international moment at this point, right? I mean, people from London, people from Paris, people from New Zealand, people from Dublin, Ireland, uh, are all participating in this in this movement for Black Lives. So, on the one hand, we want to tear down what is objectively and verifiably a racist structure, right? That, that chokes the life and chokes literally the opportunity out of uh, Black and Brown bodies in some cases. But what is it that you? What is your radical imagination for this education system? And if you all could just kind of take a moment to cast that vision, uh, I'd be ever so grateful. Wow. Um, see, honestly, for me to say it, it doesn't sound radical to me. You know, uh, I literally just want a future in which everyone can achieve their potential and more. And, you know, that shouldn't be radical but when you think about everything that has to give way and change and grow or completely be abolished for that to happen, that's, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about, you know, abolish police. There's been a lot of discussion abolish, um, even, even like SATs, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, SAT, like standardized testing to do away with that, do away with these old, school models for education where it's sort of like a top-down education as opposed to being student-led uh and i and i don't think that that's necessarily the best um best formula for everyone but i'm just saying that if there is a future in which everyone can achieve their top potential 
and there's no one saying, well, that's going to cost me money for you to do that, or that's going to hurt my interests, meeting your best interests. I think that that's, that's about as radical as it can get. I don't know. Janita, what do you think? I agree. I think um, in, a, in combination with what you're saying and what with uh, James was saying, you know, radically, I envision schooling for children where when we advocate for the least of them or for the marginalized or in our case for our black students that the pop another population doesn't feel like that's exclusive so i feel like right now particularly in our um cultural wake people feel like if you're advocating for one that means that you don't want another group to be successful and what i would radically wish for is that people would understand that when one group experiences success, we all experience success. And I spend a lot of my time as a school leader convincing other populations um, that if my marginalized populations get what they need, it lifts all of us up. And so I think that for me radically, especially in schooling, understanding that equity doesn't mean equality, that everybody doesn't benefit from these cookie cutter type educational um, experiences that different people and different kids need different things. And because I'm meeting the need of one doesn't mean that I am excluding another. And I think that the faster that we can come to that realization and understand that if one is lifted, we all are lifted. That for me would be when I realize or feel like we have radically arrived. Um, it doesn't matter what that need is. Um, we have a saying at school, hashtag remove the barrier. And that has been this year because it doesn't matter what your barrier is. I have to work as a school leader to remove it. Now, does that look the same for everybody? Absolutely not. But it, it comes with a trust that my need might not be what your need is, but my need is going to be met. My barrier is going to be removed and I am going to be considered as an individual and I'm going to be successful as an individual so that the institution as a whole can be uplifted. That for me would be radically what I hope to accomplish. Boy, that was, yeah, that was, that was some, that was tough right there. Rodney, we're going to get the last word on this, but that's, that's a tough act to follow my friend. <laughs> Yeah, I told you that's why I want to go first, man. You got you got me going behind these great young ladies. Uh, <laughs> I echo the comments of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Taylor and Ms. Wright, and what they said, and I take it a step further. I always look at things because of uh, my background, because of what I teach. I always look at things with the historical lens. And if you want me to be fully radical as I, as I could be, you know, I tell you, you know, my people never got our 40 acres and a mule, you know, so, you know, give me my reparations, give us our reparations for, you know, chattel slavery, Jim Crow, as well as the uh, racial injustice that has been profound in education, criminal justice system, healthcare, housing, anything that we look at today as a fundamental human right or civil right, you know, give us our economic repair in that regard. And to take it even further, uh, that's a national sense, but on a state level, 
you know, I think we have to bear in mind that it wasn't until black men uh, in 1868 at that constitutional convention for the state constitution, it wasn't until black men were involved with the crafting of the state constitution following the Civil War during Reconstruction where the constitutional right to a sound basic education, which is the way it's phrased today in terms of the Leandro lawsuit, was established. So when you're talking about radicalism, I want the promise that was embedded in the uh, original state constitution of 1868. I want that promise fulfilled. I want that law to be fully funded. I want that law to be carried out and distributed equitably to every student, to every school, to every school district, to every LEA, you know, whatever way you want to frame it. Because I think only then when we live up to the true spirit of that law is when we're going to see true equity. You know, we have to keep in mind that when that law was created, that education, again, still was not created with black people in mind. You know, Dr. Janice Hale, through her research, just, um, showed us that, you know, black and white children do not learn the same way. So when we talk about equity, we got to talk about pedagogy, you know, um, just things of that nature. That's, that's the lens I'm looking through historically mm-hmm. with uh, economic justice in terms of reparations and, you know, following the Leandro report, because I think if we follow that and fully follow it to the T and fund it correctly at the state level, and we'll live up to the uh, promise of the 1868 Constitutional Convention. And I know that throughout this fellowship, you all have spent time with that Leandro report as well, reading through it, dissecting it and its recommendations. And so uh, I appreciate you lifting that. And, you know, ironically, um, that book, Black Children by Janice Hale, was the first book I ever purchased on my own <laughs> after my freshman year of college. I came home, just went to Barnes and Nobles, like, I'm learning cool stuff at college. Let me just grab a book. Went to the section and said, this looks cool, and had no idea that that would end up sort of being my life's work, was responding to you know the different styles and the different needs of children. You're right. That is the spirit of equity. The cookie cutter approach does not work, and there's a promise that's been made where, you know, equity is not just a nice thing to have. Equity is the law in North Carolina. Um, it's in our state constitution. And so we have an opportunity and an um, obligation to make sure we fulfill that. Listen, I cannot wait. I know I speak for not just myself, but my partner, Janine. We say that we cannot wait to see what the future holds for you all. We're grateful to have spent this year with you um, and uh, along this process. And we hope that this has given... Um, you know, North Carolina, a brief glimpse at the future of the leadership in the space of educational equity, specifically around racial justice and education. And so I want to thank you all for your time and thank you all for um, lending your talents to us. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. We appreciate you, man. You know. Thank you, brother. Appreciate okay. it. So till next time, and we'll see you at the Freedom Hill convening, right? Absolutely. All right. Y'all take care. Thanks for joining us uh, on, on the Margins podcast. This episode of On the Margins podcast is dedicated to Portia McMillan, former Cumberland County School Board member and our first 
North Carolina Equity Fellowship Board Fellow. We lost Portia earlier this year, and I know I speak for all of our fellows when I say that her presence is sorely missed. Portia provided energy, excitement, and passion around issues of educational equity. In many ways, she was considered the leader of the group. Everyone took cues from her. She always was invigorated about the possibilities of creating a new future for students who are historically marginalized. Although we didn't get as much time as we would have liked with Portia, the moments that we shared together as a group, her infectious personality and love for all of the students of North Carolina is something that we'll continue to carry on. Her legacy will be remembered and we'll make sure to carry on the yet unfinished work of ensuring equal educational opportunity for all students of North Carolina. We miss you, Portia.